Hey there, welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank, coming to you from my house up here in Bellingham, Washington. This week, we're going to be talking about escapes, you know, for no particular reason, just kind of thinking out loud uh, here. We're going to be talking to Tessa Fontaine, who is a writer and a one-time member of a traveling sideshow where she actually performed as an escape artist, among other things. Plus, we're going to talk to Abdi Noor Iftin. He made an escape of sorts from war-torn Somalia through the Green Card Lottery Program. Then he wrote this incredible book about his experience, which we're going to hear about. Uh, Then we're going to try to escape the current reality for a while by hearing the hilarious comedy of Moses Storm. Plus, we've got music from a Livewire favorite. Laura Veers will swing by. Stick around. It's going to be a great show, and it all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How's it going? Pretty good. Even better based Mm -hmm. on the news that we have added Another station. Another one? Yeah. As of this week, we are on in beautiful Baltimore, Maryland on WYPR. Baltimore. Yes, Balmer. Balmer. <laughs> Very excited <laughs> to be on in Baltimore. In fact, uh, we even have a few fun facts. Did you know that Baltimore was home to the first dental school in the world and that one of the alumnus from that program was Doc Holliday? The gunslinger graduated from dental school in Baltimore. The gunslinging dentist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, Baltimore is the home of the six pack. It's where it was invented. Mm. There was a brewery there where some executive decided that four beers, not enough. Mm -mm. Eight beers, a little excessive. Let's go with six. Yes. Yes. It's a good number. Uh, It's also the the final resting place of the inventor of the Ouija board. Ooh. Elijah Bond, and apparently the headstone looks like a Ouija board. Ooh. It's tempting fate, I think. Spooking season is here, (laughs) and we found out a spooky fact about Baltimore. All right, you ready to do the show? Let's do it. All right, Molly, are we recording? We are rolling. All right. Elena, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the Live Wire House Party. This week, with writers Tessa Fontaine and Abdi Noor Ifton, 
comedian Moses Storm, and music from Laura Veers. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, live and direct from a small room just off his kitchen, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Oh, thank you very much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, including all the fine folks in Baltimore. We have... A fun and interesting show in store uh, this week. As uh, we always do, we ask the LiveWire audience a question. We ask them to tell us about a time that they wriggled out of something. And folks submitted those answers through social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be reading those coming up in a moment. First, though, Elena, let me ask you, uh, what is a time that you wriggled out of something? Uh, my entire adult life, I have wriggled out of ever having to cook anything. Really? Mm-hmm. I'm so bad at cooking. Within the first few years of my relationship with David, we've been together for almost <laughs> 18 years. Within a one-week span of him moving in with me, I set two bags of spinach on fire. And, <laughs> <laughs> and once I tried to make butternut squash soup, and it took a day for me to figure out how to, quote-unquote, open the butternut squash. And so he just cooks all our meals. And that sort of trickled into my social life. And so I'm always the person who brings like bread to the potluck or like a bucket of chicken. And I cannot cook anything. Do you have any desire to try to learn? Like I'm not a good cook at all, but I'm fascinated by uh, by cooking videos online. Mm. I love watching somebody make something sped up. I like, do like that. <laughs> and there's something oddly satisfying about it. Um, I, I'm not good at cooking, but I'm kind of intrigued by the idea. Are you even intrigued by it? I am. I like when people are enthusiastic about things. It's kind of my favorite thing about being alive is watching other people be enthusiastic. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I'll watch a Bake Off and they're like, uh-huh. oh, the bread is underproved. I don't know what that means, but you know, <laughs> I'm here for that. <laughs> yeah. I was trying to think about something that I wriggled out of that I feel comfortable talking about mm. on a national radio program. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and uh, here's one that is memorable in my life. It was when I was in high school, we decided, as as high schoolers are sometimes want to do, that we were going to go and egg uh, the house of some some rivals of ours, some school rivals. Oh. And so me and I think it was probably like five or six other dudes, we go to the grocery store at about one in the morning. And we're buying like six dozen eggs. And by the way, we need reasonable gun control in this country. And we also need (laughs) the clerk at the Safeway to realize that when that crew of guys comes in to buy that many eggs Mm -hmm. at one in the morning, it's not because they're making a cake. Yeah. But So we got these eggs. We go to the house in question and we just totally pulverized this house with eggs. Oh, my God. And- what was what we didn't realize was apparently the people who lived in this house had been having some unrelated trouble. <gasps> like someone had been either vandalizing or messing with their cars. And so when we were doing something that probably wasn't great, throwing the mm-hmm. eggs, but was relatively innocent, they mistook us for whoever had been there making trouble previously. And they came tearing out of the house. <laughs> we, and it, they had got dudes from the football team. <laughs> We jumped in our cars. We peeled out of there. So most of us go back to where this kind of sleepover is happening, my buddy Josh's house, a.k.a. Badger. Oh, Badger. But for some reason, a couple of us decided that instead of going and sleeping at Josh's house, we were going to go sleep in this other house in the neighborhood that was literally under construction. I don't know if we thought we were camping. What kind of a childhood did you have? (laughs) Dickensian. (laughs) So me and my couple of buddies decide we're going to just like get our sleeping bags. We're going to sleep in this other house in the like unfinished basement. Oh, my God. We wake up the next morning, 
fresh as a spring daisy. We emerge and we walk over to see what's what's happening at Josh's house, which was just like down the street. Well, it had been quickly figured out who was doing the egging. Uh-oh. Adults had gotten involved. Everybody who went and slept at Josh's house was hauled out of there at two in the morning <gasps> to go scrub down the house <gasps> where the egging had happened. Meanwhile, me and the other couple of people that decided to sleep in this squat, absolutely no consequences. And that set me on a life course of often doing the wrong thing and hoping that the consequences will not be, (laughs) will not be felt. Who says you don't learn from your experiences? Yeah, exactly. Hey, what are the Livewire listeners saying are some things they've wriggled out of, Elena? Oh, well, these were especially entertaining this week um, and also kind of long. So, so be prepared for some story time. Here's, here's one from Jeff JT. I am 6'2", 210 pounds, and served aboard U.S. Navy submarines for 20 years and routinely had to work in a special compartment called the sonar sphere, which is only accessible via a 30-foot-long horizontal tube that is about 25 inches in diameter. A person my size sure does wriggle to get in and out. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a very literal interpretation of what you've wriggled out of. Yeah, he says that wriggling out was par for the course, and I could tell you a bunch of stories, but they're not likely fit for a public radio audience. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds very claustrophobia-inducing. Yeah. All right, one more quick one from the audience before we get to our first guest. Here's one from James. I once wriggled out of a parking ticket by whipping out my tape measure and measuring how far I was parked next to the curb. I presented a picture of it in traffic court and got my ticket dismissed. Moral of the story, always keep a tape measure in your car. (laughs) And by the way, in this modern version of our life, just to make sure everyone's six feet from you. That's true. So now there's double reason. Exactly. Uh, All right, let's get our first guest over here to this house party. Uh, She's got a lot of experience wriggling out of things, Elena. She literally ran away to join a traveling sideshow where she performed, among other things, as an escape artist. She wrote about it in her book, The Electric Woman, which she then told us about when we talked to her back in 2018 at the Alberta Street Pub. This is Tessa Fontaine from Livewire back in 2018. Take a listen. Tessa, welcome to Livewire. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Um, Okay, so uh, your book is a memoir uh, kind of about a mother and a daughter and then a tragedy and then a rebirth of sorts um, by way of eating fire. That old chestnut. As you do, yeah. Um, I want to start a little bit with you and your mom. What was your relationship like uh, before she, she became ill? Yeah, we had a really uh, a really tough relationship. I had a really hard time kind of trusting her, I think, when I was growing up. You know, mothers and daughters often have hard times with each other. I don't think that's a new story, but we just didn't get along very well. And I think, you know, most people, you sort of assume that at some point you'll gain some, you know, yet-to-be-determined maturity and you'll get along. And then this really horrible thing happened, and she had a massive stroke when I was 26. So she never regained her ability to speak or walk after the stroke. And so it it completely changed our dynamic. And um, one, it sort of made me reinvestigate a lot of the stories that I had believed to be true about her and our, in our relationship. Um, and, and to really like go of a lot of stuff. 
but it also made me think I, I was a really kind of fearful kid. I was pretty shy. And I like I remember um, playing in a river with some friends and they were jumping off of a rock that was, you know, I don't know, like 10 feet off the ground into the river. And I was just like, not a chance that I will do that. <laughs> not a chance. Uh, but she had been a really a, a pretty wild woman. She was a stunt. She used to perform stunts on top of surfers shoulders. And she was a fisherman out in uh, off the coast here in Oregon, actually, and, and just lived this really wild, bright life. And so uh, in addition to kind of rethinking our relationship after she got sick, I kind of had to rethink like, what kind of person do I want to be actually, you know, do I, do I want to try to channel some of that bravery? Well, so then a couple of years after your mom has this stroke and, and she's severely disabled by it, she and your stepdad decide to take this like dream trip to Italy, which right. sends you to like a circus sideshow, basically traveling yeah. sideshow. Like what was the relationship between those events? Yeah. Yeah. It's not the normal response, I suppose. Um, as they were kind of making these plans, um, this was about the time that I started learning that there was this one sideshow left in the United States, one sideshow, traditional sideshow that still traveled around and still had people who were fire eaters and snake charmers and sword swallowers. And, um, and I started just kind of I don't know, researching about them. And then I maybe fibbed a little bit and said I was a journalist. I was not a journalist. <laughs> um, but I went down there and, and eventually just with enough interviews, uh, I think they were just like, oh, leave us alone. Just join the show already if you want to know what this is like. So when you said that you were a journalist and you went down there and started interviewing them, was it in the back of your head that you wanted to get involved from the get-go? No. It was like a project first and then all of a sudden the opportunity arose? It was like it was like a project that I was interested in writing and and then the opportunity arose and I was like, oh no, I can't say no. Oh God, dear God, I can't say no to this. And, and it, a lot of it was like, what would my mom have done had she been invited to join a sideshow? Damn it, she would have done it. Right. <laughs> okay, all right. This is the Live Wire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're playing you a conversation with the writer and sideshow performer, Tessa Fontaine, talking about her book, The Electric woman. Uh, we got to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere. We will be right back. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh my, there's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. 
Uh, let's uh, jump back into our conversation with writer Tessa Fontaine. We're talking about escapes this week. Uh, we talked to Tessa about her book, The Electric Woman, about her time as a performer in a traveling sideshow. This conversation was recorded in 2018 at the Alberta Street Pub. Check it out. Um, your, your mom suffered a, a very debilitating stroke. Uh, they weren't sure how long she was going to live. Then she takes this dream trip to Italy, even though she can't walk or talk. And so then you said, well, if I have a chance to join a sideshow, a traveling sideshow, you, you owe it to her and yourself to do it. Right. But you kind of didn't know how to do any sideshow stuff. So like, where do you yeah. start if you're a basically normal person <laughs> being in yeah. a sideshow? Yeah. Not only could I not kind of do sideshow stuff, like I can't do a cartwheel. I was, <laughs> I was at zero. Um, so, so the boss had kind of invited me along without communicating, I think to the actual road boss. And then the road boss was sent me this email and was like, all right, great. I hear you're a new performer. What can you do? And so I Googled, uh, <laughs> oh my God, <laughs> what are the acts in a sideshow? <laughs> and I copied and pasted those and I sent back an email like, great news, here are my skills. <laughs> because I was afraid that if he knew that I couldn't do anything, he would not invite me, which is very reasonable. Um, <laughs> so then he was like, great, see you in two months. Um, and so then I decided that I should learn one thing. I thought I should know one thing before I went out there. And I'm from San Francisco and in the Bay Area. Um, we're very lucky that we have fire eating classes that take place. They're probably here in Portland too, actually. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's a major actually yeah. at Portland State University. <laughs> So, you, so you you gotta like learn how to fire eat before you show up, yeah. uh, for the sideshow because like you at least promised that much. So, what was that like? I went to this class. There was one other guy in it who actually was a, a burner. He had lied to a separate circus sideshow that he could <laughs> fire eat. We were in it together. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, he was a stilt walker at Burning Man, and he felt like he was too ordinary as a stilt walker at Burning Man. <laughs> he was just one of a crowd, and so he wanted to become a, the fire eating still walker at Burning Man. So we were in this class together. And so just right away, the teacher's kind of like, okay, you know, light your arm on fire. <laughs> that's, that's step one. Step right? one. Yeah. <laughs> you start, yeah, you start pretty quickly with, with lighting yourself on fire. And, and indeed, like, it seems a lot scarier than it is. I mean, I should say no one tried this at home, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, you kind of just start wiping this flaming torch. You dip it in white gas and you start wiping it along, um, your arms and legs and, and you watch all of your little arm hairs just quickly, you know, crumple and curl and singe and fall off. Um, and then within, I mean, within the first hour of, of getting to the class, we were putting it in our mouth and eating fire. Um, and I thought that, you know, I watched the other guy try it first. He was really hesitant. He couldn't get it very close. It seemed really natural. Um, she handed me the torch and I took a big breath and just put it directly deep into my mouth. <sighs> and she was just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> You don't have many instincts for self-preservation. Yeah, you're just trusting her yeah. that I, I assume the saliva and other things in your mouth will make this okay, right? Right, right. Uh, but I mean, you know, like, what if it hadn't been okay? Yeah. Why do you think that you were able to get it closer to your face than the still walker? Still walker from Burning Man. Yeah. Right. Um, the only thing that I can really think of is I had a lot of desperation at that point. I was, I was really heartbroken about my mom. I was really unsure about what I was doing. It felt like there wasn't a lot to lose. And wow. so, you know, might as well light the inside of your body on fire. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> what do you think accounts for the the decline of the sideshow? It's not a very popular thing anymore. I mean, this is like the last one, basically. Why they used to be a big deal? What, what is it about the the climate of our country these days that we're not interested? The bosses actually talk about this a lot, and sort of their speculation is it has to do with people aren't willing to be amazed in person anymore. Like, you see such extreme things on TV that seeing a person swallow a sword somehow doesn't seem that spectacular. Uh, Uh, Like, we had some people come out of the show sometime and be like, ugh, there was not any blood at all. And we're like, we are actual humans. (laughs) Right. (laughs) This is not a video game. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's a piece of it. Um, I think also it's a, I mean, it's a spectacular art form. You know, it's dangerous. It's exciting. It's weird. Not all of it is very convincing. Like we had some pretty terrible illusions, a (laughs) a spider, spider. (laughs) a a woman's head and a spider body. I also had no head and four legs and, um, and like, you can't tell how it's done, but, but also, you know, I mean, you know, it's not real, except for some people who would be like, I can't believe that I just paid $2 and that was not a real spider headed woman. You're like, like, if that really existed, it would be $5. (laughs) Okay. It would not be $2. Um, It seems like a big message of this book is that there's, I'm paraphrasing your exact words here. There's no trick to eating fire. You just have to eat it. Right. Right. Is that something you've taken now into the rest of your life? Yeah, very much. Um, I used to have this idea that there were like, fearful people and brave people in the world and that I was just a fearful person. Um, and I think from eating fire and, and really learning a lot of the sideshow acts, I kind of came to understand that there aren't different kinds of people. It's just a matter of you're afraid of the thing and then you just do the thing anyway. Um, and that being afraid or even doing something that's going to hurt you physically hurt you a little bit, like swallowing a sword or escaping from chains, it doesn't feel good, but you just do it. Uh, and that was a really, really big lesson for me. Do you think if you were back uh, on that river, would you jump off that rock now? Oh, yeah. A swan dive. <laughs> Blindfolded. <laughs> Holding two flaming torches. Yes. That's Tessa Fontaine, everyone, right here on Livewire. The book is The Electric Woman. That was Tessa Fontaine from back in 2018, right here on the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. Uh, We recorded some of the elements of this week's show, Elena, Mm -hmm. at the Alberta Street Pub. I got to tell you, when you hear the tape and the sound of (laughs) human beings in the same room enjoying each other's company, it really takes you back. Oh, I can't even remember, like glasses clinking, chairs scraping. Yes, all of those things. It's a nice little nostalgic trip. By the way, Tessa's book is The Electric Woman. This is the Livewire House Party. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Our next guest is a comedian an actor who made a great escape out to the open road as a kid, not by himself though, he was actually with his missionary family, was on a bus. Uh, He has performed on Conan. Uh, He was on the last season of Arrested Development as well as NBC's Sunnyside. He is very funny. We're gonna hear him now. He's Moses Storm. Take a listen to this, recorded at the Alberta Street Pub back in 2018. Good to be with you guys. I'm Moses Storm. That is my that is my real stupid name. 
Whenever I meet someone for the first time, they're always like, Moses, whoa. There's a name you don't hear every day. Uh, no, I do. <laughs> hear it probably every day. Um, I think there's nothing funnier to me than, uh, than being sassy and then immediately needing help. I was at this birthday party, and there was this girl. She was yelling at an entire uh, table of now, I guess, former friends. And she goes, actually, sweetheart, I don't need to talk bad about people because unlike you, I actually have a good life. Pretty solid, sassy line to leave on, right? But then she has to turn around one last time to go, and yeah, I am going to need a ride home. <laughs> what kind of confidence is that? I, I didn't really know anyone at that birthday party, but I went to that party because sometimes I'll take an Adderall, get on Facebook, and just agree to things. Adderall is such a dangerous drug. It's an amphetamine. Basically, what happened is the government was like, cocaine is bad. And we were like, well, what if we made it blue? And they're like, you got us there. Give it to every child you know. I got prescribed Adderall. I'm, I'm severely dyslexic, so I got prescribed Adderall because I really wanted to like focus on how I can't read. <laughs> I am actually dyslexic, so it does make me a little angry when people will use dyslexia as an excuse. Like they'll they'll misspell a word in an email or a text, and they'll follow that up with like, "Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm so dyslexic." No, you're thinking of stupid. And it was an accident how I got prescribed Adderall in the first place. I originally went into my doctor to get a blood test because I was scared. I, had, I was scared because I had the two worst things that you can have at the same time. And that's a headache and the internet. There is no worse combination thanks to WebMD. Have you been on worstcasescenario.com? I went on WebMD with symptoms of a headache and WebMD was like, yeah, okay, I know what that is. It turns out you've actually been dead for seven years. Great, I guess I'll stop making the payments on my Kia Sorento then. I was, uh, I was actually a very late bloomer as a kid. Like, I didn't really hit puberty until hopefully next year. And I had this long blonde hair. I had this long hair because my mom didn't know how to cut hair. She was too cheap to ever like pay for a real haircut. So she was like, oh, well, why don't I just cut it exactly like my hair, but then a little bit shorter, and then that'll be for boys. And it's not... And it was this like glowing platinum blonde because this is completely true. My mom dyed all of her kids blonde because she didn't want anyone knowing that she herself was not a natural blonde. <laughs> Even a serial killer on the run from the law in a movie would be like, no, that's too much. That is overkill. So which begs the question, like what heinous crime did my mom commit? For her to feel like it was necessary to essentially gone girl all of her kids with hair dye. <laughs> Couldn't afford haircuts. Uh, we, were on, we were on welfare growing up. Uh, and the technical term for a family on welfare, like what the government actually calls us, is a food insecure household. I never liked that term because food insecure just makes like a pretty serious issue just sound adorable. <laughs> oh, come on, show us your food. No. Mm -mm. Like, I'm starving, not bashful. And you definitely miss out on certain things as a poor kid. Like, we never had ice cream growing up. The closest thing that we had to ice cream, and I hesitate to even call it that, 
Every once in a while, my mom would buy us that like giant clear value bucket of ice cream. Do you remember those where they were like too cheap to even be a real flavor? Like we got white and we got darker white. And this is true. My mom only bought us that ice cream because she needed the bucket. At Walmart, a mopping bucket costs $6.99. The value bucket of ice cream, $4.99. It was cheaper than an empty bucket. Do you know how crappy your ice cream has to be for it to actually depreciate the value of an empty bucket? I'm Moses Storm, and I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Moses Storm, right here on Livewire. Moses, thank you for being so funny. Um, can you expand a little bit on your childhood? Uh, you, you grew up, uh, your family was missionaries. You guys were, were traveling around in a bus. What was going on? When I was two years old, my parents, they sold our house in Ohio, and then they bought this old uh, Greyhound bus, ripped out the seats, and then converted it into an RV themselves. So uh, it looked like if someone asked the fire department to build them an example of a fire hazard. (laughs) (laughs) And put how many kids in it? Five. So seven people total in a diesel tube. And uh, nothing worked. What was the uh, what was the the brand of missionary work they were doing? Like, where were you going? Uh, what was their background? <laughs> they made up their own thing. Did you know you could do that? No, I didn't. They made up their own religion. It was like a mixture of Judaism and Catholicism, sort of like a greatest hits of those two. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and they just made up their own thing. Wow. And like, so you would go and 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 spread the word on the Storm family. Yeah. You know, gospel? Yeah, so we'd go to, like, outside of a concert. We'd have those giant uh, neon signs that say, like, you know, really interest-catching things, like, you're headed for hell. Um, but my mom is also dyslexic, so there'd be some misspellings. So it'd be like, you're headed for heel. I'm like, <laughs> all right. What kinds of concerts? Like, who, where? where? Uh, Rolling Stones was, was a popular one. Any, like, music festival. Um, you know, if you guys were around in the early 90s, you'd probably be outside of this joint. Right yeah, wow, a lot cool. of a lot of people that need to hear the the good word. Absolutely, um, I, I grew up in a in a pretty religious family too. Not like we're gonna move into a bus religious, mm-hmm. but everybody except us is going to hell religious. Yeah, and first of all, I internalized a lot of that, which actually was very freaky as a little kid because they're talking about the rapture, and you're like, this is really happening. You know, are we gonna go up before the tribulation or after the tribulation? That's a huge difference in my life as a seven year old. Um, but also, we didn't get a lot of good science education. And right. That was something for you, too? Yeah. I mean, I know, like, basic things about science. Like, I know, like, photosynthesis is caused by the devil. <laughs> <laughs> Hurricanes are pure witchcraft. Uh, yeah, no, it wasn't, wasn't a lot of school. It wasn't homeschool. Um, we, we technically were homeschool, but that is such a generous term for what yes. we did. It was, it was essentially no school. <laughs> um, did any of that upbringing, did that propel you into, into wanting to perform? I think, yes, it did in the way of like, oh, I'm good at nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I'm not going to go into like paralegal law having no, no background in, in, in school or anything. So I was like, oh, okay, I could technically perform. So I'll just, I'll lean into that. I have no plan B. <laughs> this is it. Did you, I mean, um, did you guys like sing songs? Like, were you a performancey family? Uh, we would do like skits, 
like uh but they had like a heavy religious undertone <laughs> undertone is is obviously too polite for it because even like some christian music be like oh this is a good song go with god it slowly works in this was like a hard like boom oh that's you had front loaded, front loaded sure. the religious part yeah. at the beginning of the yeah. song. <laughs> Absolutely, we, we were in this. Uh, I, I the church that we went to would do these plays. Well, one of them was about a Christian song computer called Colby, and there was a series of musicals around this Christian song computer. I was in God Uses Kids, Colby Five, and we took this show on the road to like malls. <laughs> Yeah. And homeless shelters. And some of these malls were in Canada. I was thinking about the person that was just trying to go to pay less shoes <laughs> yes. and saw me playing Tony the bad kid uh, in Colby Five, God Uses Kids. Right? What about the people hearing your uh, family? That's what songs? I was thinking about. Imagine you're just a nice person trying to go to Rolling Stones, you're trying to come down from acid, <laughs> and then you got this neon sign in your face and you have a two foot tall kid saying, You're headed for heel. <laughs> <laughs> Moses Storm, everybody. Thank you guys so much. That was Moses Storm performing at the Alberta Street Pub back in 2018. This, of course, is the Livewire House Party, where we're recording everything from our house because it's 2020. That's all right. We're still having fun. By the way, Moses is having a moment, Elena. I don't yeah. know if you know about this. Uh-uh. Uh, he has a deal now with HBO Max for a new comedy special. Oh, cool. And he's just showing up on all kinds of shows and venues everywhere right now. So look for Moses out there. This is the Livewire House Party. Of course, each week we ask the Livewire listeners a question and people send those answers in via social media. Uh, this week, the question was, tell us about a time you wriggled out of something. Um, Elena, what are some of those replies from the audience? Here's one from Susanna. Oh, the times I've tried things on in the dressing room that were too tight are too numerous to recount. <laughs> Do men have this issue, Mr. Burbank, where you go into a dressing room with something, you never quite know what the size is, and there's straps and buttons and things, and sometimes you get stuck in the dressing room for like 30 minutes. <laughs> I, I'm happy to say that hasn't happened a lot in my life, but that may just be my fashion choices yeah. are pretty are pretty uncomplicated. Mm-hmm. Go with a black t-shirt in the summer and a very simple button-up shirt in the wintertime. So there's not a lot of buckles and facets yeah. and things that are connecting. It's hard to get um, stuck in a t-shirt. <laughs> that's right. All right. Uh, what's something else the listeners have wriggled out of at some point? Here's one from Ellie. I agreed to adopt a friend of a friend's turtle before I found out <laughs> that they could live up to 40 years. And I refused to write a turtle into my will. So I told them that the tank wouldn't fit into my apartment. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's exactly the kind of passive aggressive move that I would pull, unfortunately. Like, I sort of have good boundaries in that I don't do stuff that I don't want to do, mm. but I'm never very upfront about how I'm enforcing the boundary. Mm-hmm. So, what that listener might have said was, I'm just not ready for the responsibility of a, a turtle that's going to start getting mailings from AARP. Right. <laughs> but instead, they just blamed it on the layout of the apartment, which is totally a move I would pull. Um, parrots live forever. Like, y- yeah. you have parrots for decades, apparently. You heard about the the parrots in the UK, right? No. That were swearing? No. <laughs> so because of the pandemic, a lot of people are spending more time with their parrots than they expected. <laughs> 
And then they're like turning those parrots into animal sanctuaries because they can't handle it. <laughs> These five African gray parrots were turned into an animal sanctuary and they got together and they, they all started swearing at each other. <laughs> To the point where it was, like, offensive to some of the people visiting the park. So they moved the parrots and put them, like, way in the back. And then everyone started coming to this wildlife sanctuary to see the parrots. The potty mouth parrots. So they have moved them back into the public area because they're the main attraction now at this park. Oh, my God. That's the best thing that I've heard. African gray parrots are amazing, but um, I, I didn't know that they had that penchant for profanity. You get them together, and apparently it really things devolve very quickly. All right, one more quick one before we get to uh, our next guest. I love this one from Beth. I, I'm with Beth on this. I'm so happy I won't have to figure out a way to wriggle out of this year's company holiday party. I mean, it, you can only yeah. have so many excuses if you're employed by the same place for several holiday seasons. And this time it's just carte blanche. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to call that a silver lining to this whole thing is there are a lot of social and professional engagements that you got a pretty strong excuse to not have to engage with anymore. <laughs> uh, this is Live Wire House Party. We're talking about wriggling out of things this week. Um, and our next guest is kind of an expert on that topic. First, as a young man in Somalia, uh, he was sort of using the world of American action movies and pop culture as an escape. He just like obsessively consumed American pop culture. He had this dream of always coming to America, which he actually was able to realize after he won the green card lottery. A lot of people might have heard this guy's story on this amazing episode of This American Life. He's also told it on the BBC. And then in his memoir, which is titled Call Me American, uh, we were very lucky to have him stop by Portland back in 2018. Uh, this is our chat with Abdi Noor Iftin, recorded at the Alberta Street Pub. Take a listen. Abdi, welcome to the show. Thank you. What a fun. It's, it's uh, so great to have you here. Uh, I, like a lot of people, I think, first heard your story on This American Life. Um, but I, I almost feel like uh, that piece, amazing as it was, left out a really formative part of your life because uh, it kind of starts with this guy, Abdi, is trying to win the green card lottery and he's at a cyber cafe. But what we didn't get to find out, which we find out in your book, was just how unbelievably dangerous and intense your life as a young person was in Somalia during the, the Civil War. Can you try to describe a little bit about what life was like there? I was five years old when the war, uh, the Civil War began, and, uh, and everything had been uh, destroyed to ashes. I talk about it in the book. It was uh, at a point where we wished for death because everything was, you know— um, uh, and extremely I think, dangerous. If, if I just heard you say that and I hadn't read the book, I would think maybe he's overstating it. But when you read about how hard life was for people in Somalia, um, y you can understand how somebody would see that as actually being a relief. I mean, it's it, it, to be honest with you, once I knew this about your life, I was amazed that, that you are able to be the sort of outgoing, you know, a person that you are. It just seems like it would be so hard to overcome that stuff. How have you done that? Well, I mean, you know, when, when we realized that uh, we were leaving, we were not dying anyway, so <laughs> the war itself had become something fun 
for us to just live through it. It's like we were chasing after the militias and just collecting bullets for them and, you know, and, and trying to make some kind of living out of that. And then the U.S. Marines have landed when they saw these pictures of uh, young children of my age on the newspapers, you know, flies landing on their faces and all that. And then they decided to humanitarily intervene. And so somehow that had uh, that had become like a real movie for me, just see the Humvees and the uniforms all over the streets. And I would I would uh, go follow them all over the place you know, because of the food that they were, you know, throwing out from their pockets. And uh, and but most importantly, just looking at them face to face in the eyes and saying, like, you aliens landed from the air, you know, from, from the sky. Like, who are you? So that was the point where they're like, they have been somehow trained and, and told a few sentences in uh, Somali. And then they would say something to us uh, in Somali, but we didn't understand it. But they weren't the only ones trying to learn at least some part of a language that they didn't speak because you became obsessed with... Uh, with them, with speaking English, with American action movies, and, and even with Michael Jackson. Like, can you kind of describe what this improvised, like, movie shack was that your neighbor had? Yeah, um, she was uh, part of this movie theater that was, that existed in the city before the war started. And the war happens, and a year after the war, she comes back to the city to rediscover or, re, you know, redo what she was working on. But unfortunately, everything is destroyed. So she goes back to her house and she has somehow saved a little a television and uh, a pile of uh, cassettes. And she tries to, you know, replay. But unfortunately, at this time, Somalias are going through a thinking where because the war happened and we're all dying, you know, and we have two great problems happening here, the war and the famine. And it's because God... Somalis are very religious. They believe that God was angry, that there were movie theaters in the city at the time. So at this point, people were trying to avoid any movie theaters to come back. So that's when I talk about my book where my mom does not want to me. She says, it's the devilish place. Don't even go. Yes, you won't even go in your room, right? Because you have like movie posters and stuff. No, well, she walks into my room, but she finds a picture of Madonna in bikini. (laughs) <laughs> in my room and in Mogadishu, in Mogadishu, and I'm I'm uh, seven eight years old, and I, I you know I love the woman, uh, of course in bikinis, <laughs> but but my mom says that's a devil thing, so she she tears it and uh, kicks me out of the house uh, for that, and so um, be- because she she thinks like the war happened because of some things like this, she didn't want us to die and go to hell. We're talking to Abdi Nor Ifton. His new book is Call Me American. So eventually you were able to make your way uh, to Nairobi and you somehow won one of the green card spots, but they were rounding up Somali men who were in Nairobi. And so you had to, even though you had gotten further along in this process of of being able to come to America than, than would have been expected, you had to basically hide out in Nairobi so that you didn't get arrested because you needed to get to this interview. Mm-hmm. This was all stuff that was uh, on the BBC and also part of This American Life. How did you get hooked up with the person from the BBC who documented your story? Because it's crazy to listen to it because you're like hiding from the police and talking on the phone and recording yourself. How did that come about? Um, the BBC guy, Leo, calls me one day. He says, I heard you won the lottery and I'm you know, putting together a story about this lottery. So what do you see? And I'm whispering, I'm saying like, I can't talk right now. Mm-hmm. I'll call you tonight. And he says, why are you whispering? What's going on? I say, the police are after me. And he's like, okay, I'll call you tonight. So uh, three hours later, he calls. He's like, what happened? Why were you whispering? And I'm like, well, the camp police are after the Somalis because there was the, uh, um, the attack of the Somali Islamist groups. 
And interestingly enough, the Kenyans decided all Somalis are a problem. So they were just thinking of sending us back to the country. So the whole story from the lottery turns into, you know, and he says, let's do an uh, audio diary in this. So he wasn't, he was not sure if I would ever make it to the United States, but he was interested in like this guy who wins a lottery from Somalia and the entire community being, you know, uh, 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 targeted by the Kenyan police. So what's going to happen? He was looking for at the end of this entire story and eventually becomes Abdi and the golden ticket on this American life. Right. And I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but Abdi did make it to America. <laughs> uh, to Portland, Maine. How was it when you got there? How did finally getting to America and being in America compare with all of the fantasizing that you'd done about America and watching action films and, and obsessively learning English and these little scraps that you could? What was it like when you actually got here? Well, I would say first, uh, uh, the night I came to America, uh, I don't have my own family. I, I didn't know any Somali in America. So this white Americans in Maine, Mainers, uh, decided to take me in. They said, we're going to sponsor you. So we have a, a big house with a horse and barn and farm and all that. So you're going to come join us. So they came, picked me up from Boston. And we were driving on 95. For those of you who know who drove from Massachusetts to Maine, at night, it's, you don't see anything. It's, it's dark. So it kind of, to me, it felt a little bit scary. It felt like, um, you know, one of those Walking Dead movies. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> where are these people taking me? And they didn't take, they didn't, they didn't take me to Portland. They took me uh, to a, a place about um, uh, 20 miles, kind of, from, from Portland called Yarmouth. And uh, we, we got into the house and they said, well, go, you know, go to sleep and we will see you tomorrow. Your and head I, must have been spinning at this I, point. I know. I, I wasn't quite sure what I was getting into. And uh, these people that uh, I have nothing in common with except humanity, you know, they, they, they're wise. And uh, at some point you could feel like you're getting kidnapped, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so I wake up in the morning, I look through the window and there's deer grazing all over the place and uh there's the intermittent whoosh of the cars and you know i got down and i said what's going on here and then they <laughs> took me around for um uh they they just showed me the food that they have in the fridge and then um once we had breakfast they took me out and they said let's introduce you to the neighbors so we went the first neighbor that we walked several hundred feet from the house we knocked at the door and they said, don't call 911, he's with us. <laughs> so, yeah, so this was August 12th and August 11th, Michael Brown was, was killed by the wow. police in Missouri. Wow. And there was this whole craziness going on. So every house that we went, it was not an introduction. It was just... They were making sure that nobody called the police on you. Exactly. They didn't want to get themselves into trouble um, bringing this guy into a neighborhood that's extremely white. <laughs> and the people are like, oh, he's with you? Okay. And then the family weren't quite sure how to explain. Well, he's from Somalia. He's a refugee. So we, uh, he's staying with us until he finds his job and all of that. You know, so um, what does that show me? The America that I dreamed about, that I have seen in the movies, wasn't really the America that I thought it was. Yeah. It was a completely different thing. Um, Somalia is one of the countries on the, the list now of travel from those nations is banned largely to the U.S. This was upheld by the Supreme Court. What does that feel like for you as a Somali-American to, to know that that ban is in place and it, and it affects Somalia? You know, well, first of all, um, it weakens the image of America in the eyes of the world. It, it also uh, strengthens the image of the America's enemy. The group that I, uh, I escaped is called Al-Shabaab in Somalia. And now they're going all over the place with huge speakers and telling people, see this? I told you America hates Islam, right? And then for those, of, for those young men of my age who are still stuck in this uh, Somalia, who, were, who had some sort of a dream and were going to movies, you know, to learn English or just, you know, listening to music, 
now they realize that their um, their American dream isn't you know there anymore. So um, they are very vulnerable to be recruited. And so the, the chances of um, uh, ISIS coming back to several countries and Al-Qaeda and, you know, Al-Shabaab, Boko Haram and all of these things. I don't know what the White House was thinking, but this is actually good news and a gift to this uh, kind of people. So I'm disappointed. Um, I'm the only member of my family in America. Uh, my brother, my mother, my sister, all are back there. And now they're calling me to say, are you safe? And I have never expected that someone would call me from a war zone Right. A war-torn country to tell me, are you, are you, you know, are you okay in America? And I tell them, you know, I'm flying all over the place right now. But I'm not illegal, so um, for sure, nothing is going to happen to me. And then um, I'm not even considering going into Canada now. Right? Um, yeah, I, I feel uh, my American dream had been betrayed, as I say. Do you feel like any of the ideals of America, as you understood them, do you see those uh, in play too? I mean, do you think the, in a way, the American dream is still alive? Um, well, now I realize that America is divided. The Republican-Democrat thing completely drives me crazy, and this is not America that I, you know, I thought of. But um, I still think that the American dream is alive. It's not dead. I mean, you this, feel like there's hope. I feel like there's hope. Yes, this guy's not a king. He's not going to be there forever. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, knock wood. <laughs> that was Abdi Noor Ifton talking about his book, Call Me American. We recorded that back in 2018 at the Alberta Street Pub in Portland. Uh, a little update, Elena, mm -hmm. on Abdi. He became a U.S. citizen really? in January of this year. Oh. He is a student at Boston College. Um, and he released a young adult version of this book oh, this last cool. summer. So if you have some young adults in your life and you want them to uh, experience a really inspiring story, uh, definitely check that out. This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Uh, we've got to take a quick break, but do not go anywhere because when we come back, uh, we will hear some music from a Livewire favorite, Laura Veers. So stay with us. Special thanks this episode to Christopher Buterlein of Portland, Oregon, and also Mark Serwinski of Tillamook, Oregon. Christopher and Mark are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting us with a donation each month, uh, which is how we're able to do the show. So thank you so much, Christopher and Mark, for making Livewire possible. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal T this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank at my house in Bellingham, Washington. Elena Passarello is down there in Corvallis, Oregon at her place. Um, our musical guest this hour is a Livewire favorite whose work, according to her website, blends science and poetry to bring strange beauty to everyday life. Uh, she's brought a lot of beauty to our lives, including releasing 11 solo albums and even serving as the host of a podcast about the lives of musician parents, which is a surprisingly large 
group of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't picture people having kids necessarily if they're standing in front of a microphone holding yeah. a guitar, but of course. Yeah, you never think of Slash from Guns N' Roses co-parenting. <laughs> How many kids does Slash have? Little baby Slash. I'm unsure slashes. as of press time, <laughs> but I'm sure he's doing great. All right, this is Laura Veers, sort of the Slash to the public radio <laughs> listening audience. Uh, we recorded this back in 2018 at the Alberta Street Pub. Uh, this song is Margaret Sands. It's off of Laura's album, The Lookout. Take a listen to this. Scuttling paws have cleaned her hands, rising and falling in the whirlpool sand. You, you turn the wheel, your eyes of green and steel. Consider Margaret's hands. How the gulls cry, how the sunlight fans. Gliding above the bones of Margaret Sand. Now she's married to the swell, she's swaying in the shells, a whisper in the waves. How I listen as I sail, straight backed and pale, her opalescent how the girls cry, how the sunlight lands, gliding above the bones of Margaret was Laura Veers, recorded back in 2018 at the Alberta Street Pub. This is the Live Wire House Party. By the way, Laura has a new album that will be coming out October 23rd. It's called My Echo. And in case you heard us talking before we heard that song from Laura, Slash from Guns N' Roses has two kids. Uh, do you know what their names are? Uh, back and Forward. Slash. Like backslash, <laughs> forward slash. 
Let me. I'm going to check the Wikipedia page and see. You might be right. Um, before we get out of here this week, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to Lulu Miller, who has this amazing book out called Why Fish Don't Exist. Lulu is also a, one of the newly minted hosts of Radio Lab, which Ooh. is one of my very favorite radio shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also going to be talking to Sopan Deb. He is a New York Times writer. He has a memoir out about reconnecting with his parents as an adult. And also we're going to hear music from the incredible Morea Massa. And we are going to be getting your answers, you the listeners' answers, to our listener question, which is where our social media manager, Ariana Donneville, comes in. Hiya, Ariana. Hey, Luke. How are you? Very good. Um, (laughs) What is the question uh, for the LiveWire listeners for this coming week? Yeah, this week's audience question is, what's something that fascinates you that no one else seems to care about? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Elena was born to answer this question. Um, what is the best way for people to uh, let us know their answers to that question, Ariana? Yeah, listeners can submit their answers on Twitter and Instagram at Livewire Radio, as well as on Facebook. Speaking of our uh, social media universe here at Livewire, um, we had a little competition of sorts <laughs> oh, <no>. going this <laughs> past week. So we did an interview recently with the writer Drew McGarry, who was trying to improve his handwriting. And uh, and we took that as inspiration, Elena and I did, to do some handwriting exercises and try to improve our handwriting. Um, and then mm-hmm. you posted the results on our social media channels, Ariana. Um, and I guess there was supposed to be like a verdict as to like whose handwriting improved more, mine or Elena's. What was the result? <laughs> well, Luke's was chosen as the oh, one <laughs> that it improved the most. Although there was some speculation that, you know, having Rudy in the picture got oh, more yeah. people to choose it. Oh, That's dirty pool. It is. <laughs> I did take a picture of the results with my dog's little head, just the top of her head, staring over the dining room table at me. Um, I want to say that was a coincidence and not the result of me holding a fistful of <laughs> treats. I also uh, left a word out of day one. How did you win this thing? I, I demand a recount. <laughs> Most improved. Oh, right. ah. Elena, isn't there enough baseless speculation about the results of any upcoming elections? I mean, the people have spoken. They said my handwriting was atrocious at the beginning, and now it's only semi-atrocious. <laughs> All right, Ariana, thank you for the update. We'll talk to you next week. Okay, thanks. All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Tessa Fontaine, Moses Storm, Abdi Noor Ifton, and Laura Veers. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Savchenko. Amy McCormick is our development director. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring, who also composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director, and she mixed this episode. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank member Nathaniel Holtman of Tacoma, Washington. For more information about the show or how you can listen to our podcast, Head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.
Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>